You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Alistair McIntyre's books taught me over the years to attend to the history of our moral language. In some places, at some times, humility will be a vice that signals a lack of concern for justice. And at other times and in other places, humility is a central virtue without which the other virtues cannot take their places. And alongside virtues, sometimes human communities speak of values, whether family values, individual values, corporate values. Things get especially weird when people start talking about biblical values. And Dr. John J. Collins is here to talk about that oddity. In his new book, What Are Biblical Values? Collins explores our own historical moment and specifically the ways in which public figures and political parties often ignore the content of the Bible in the rush to claim the Bible's prominence for their own rhetorical and policy goals. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him aboard to talk about this new book. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Collins. Good to be here. I want to start by exploring your book's occasion. I've kind of already alluded to it in the opening statement. What kinds of public phenomena were in the air, so to speak, that made a book about this strange phrase, biblical values, worth writing? Uh, well, it was largely the use of that language in the American political context. Now, it was kind of catalyzed for me in an ad that the Billy Graham Foundation ran be- coming up to uh, a presidential election. I think it was the second Obama election. Okay. Uh, in which they urged people to vote for candidates who support biblical values and then, then gave their uh, kind of short list of what these values were. And these were you know, the right to life um, or the sacredness of life, as they put it. Um, they um, got it here. Those who protect the sanctity of life, support the biblical definition of marriage between a man and a woman, and they all say so through in there, support the state of Israel. I didn't actually tackle the state of Israel, uh, but as somebody commented, you know, if you look at what the Bible says about the state of Israel, it's not actually all that supportive. Right. So, you know, but also I was struck by the things they didn't mention. I'm an Old Testament scholar primarily. Uh, you know, the drumbeat in the Old Testament is really justice. Mm-hmm. That didn't show up here at all. Right, right. Well, let's go ahead and turn to uh, some of the hermeneutical questions that arise with the Old Testament and beyond. And I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and say out front, I like the approach to hermeneutics that your opening chapter lays down. Interpretation is irreducible. Texts don't mean anything until someone reads them. And texts are very flexible but finite, bound by communities and by subjects and verbs in the text themselves. So what sorts of, or what approaches to the Bible are you guarding against with this approach to hermeneutics? Well, the immediate context for what I wrote there came from discussions here at Yale. We had a colleague here for many years named Dale Martin, who was, uh, would regard himself very much as a postmodernist and be very strong on the idea that texts don't say anything, that texts don't say anything until you construe them. And I think that's 
true in a sense, but it's also overstated because in most cases, you know, there isn't actually that much dispute about what the texts mean. Right. You look at them. I mean, there are some cases where there are, but, you know, the um, ordinary use of language constrains things to a great degree. And the Bible, for the most part, with maybe the exception of the Pauline letters, you know, is not an obscure book. Mm-hmm. It's written in, you know, rather plain language that uh, it wasn't written for highly intellectual people on the whole. Right, right. And and it's interesting that, again, you know, when we talk about uh, disputes about biblical interpretation, I think you're absolutely right. We're talking about marginal cases. Uh, most of us would not dispute that, you know, the place names in the New Testament, for instance, refer mainly to the Mediterranean basin rather than right. Japan. Uh, you know, right. yeah. so, I mean, I, I, it's interesting that... Uh, um, and I can't think of, of which thinker I've been reading recently who's, I, I think it might be Wayne C. Booth, uh, who talks about the possibility of disagreement only happens within large zones of more basic agreement. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that's certainly true in this case, I think. Now, you know, at the same time, I can also see what Dale Martin was guarding against. And, uh, you know, he is quite openly and polemically gay and was therefore particularly concerned with the tendency of people to say, but the Bible says that homosexuality is sinful. Mm-hmm. And that the oversimplification of that, I think, is something to be guarded against. Oh, certainly, certainly, yeah. yeah. And, and people do tend to project their prejudices onto the Bible and claim divine authority for them. And there's no basis for that at all. Certainly. Well, I want to ask about another uh, maneuver that you make in that opening chapter before we turn to particular issues. Certainly, uh, sexuality will uh, be on the table for this conversation. But uh, in your opening chapter, you also express a certain aversion to allegory. Now, among the hats that I wear at my little college in Georgia, I sometimes teach medieval literature. Uh, so, I mean, I, I eat, breathe, and drink allegory. So what about allegory rules it out of bounds when you teach readers to interpret these texts that we call the Bible? You see, I think allegory is a fine thing for aesthetic purposes. Okay. And I can see fine uses for it in the pulpit, mm-hmm. you know, where you can make your speech more colorful by the use of allegory. Okay. Where it becomes objectionable, I think, is when it becomes a tool of apologetics. And let let me give you an example of this. Um, You know, the the question of violence in the Bible is a very controversial one, has been, especially in the last 20 years or so. I discussed this also in the book. Uh, There's a very prominent New Testament scholar who said, you know, we should read the Bible the way Origen read it. So, what the Israelites were rooting out were vices. Mm-hmm. Now, my reaction to that is, who are you kidding? Okay. That, that to my mind, is, to, is intellectually dishonest. Because those passages about slaughtering the Canaanites weren't written allegorically. 
there are plenty of things in the Bible that are written allegorically and that you can read allegorically with no trouble. Uh, that isn't one of them. So it's really the use of, of allegory as an apologetic me tool to avoid, uh, to explain away difficult texts. That's what I would object to. All right, let me follow up on that a bit because uh, at least when Dante writes about allegory, and I, and I believe when Augustine writes about allegory too, although I've taught Dante more recently, uh, he always talks about allegory as a reading that exists alongside the literal. Uh, is your objection to a plurality of readings, or is it mainly to allegories that supplant and obscure the more literal readings? I would say mainly the latter. Okay. I mean, can certainly imagine lots of situations where, you know, different kinds of readings are possible. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I think you have to bear in mind that uh, for a long time, allegory was, you know, an acceptable, deemed to be an acceptable way of thinking. Sure. Uh, this developed, you know, as you well know, in Alexandria, and then for what, 1,500 years or so, mm -hmm. uh, it, it seemed quite natural to people. Now, it doesn't anymore, on the whole, in the culture as a whole. Mm -hmm. not teaching medieval literature. So I think that makes a difference to it. But it's mainly, as I say, it's the, the use to which it is being put that I would be concerned with. Okay, all right, all right. Well, I want to turn to uh, some of the particular uh, issues here. Uh, and your opening chapter, uh, I'm actually going to, to turn sideways because I also teach some Greek literature. Uh, you make a, a fascinating comparison, I think, when you talk about the notion of a right to life between the biblical Jephthah from the Book of Judges and then the Achaean king Agamemnon, uh, who most of our listeners will know from Homer's Iliad, and from the tragedy of Aeschylus called Orestia. Uh, so it caught my attention. Uh, and here's my question. You know, when we talk about that allegorical approach, I'm going to keep coming back to allegory, I apologize. Uh, but even before Alexandria, Plato, when he writes about the character of Agamemnon, uh, turns to allegorical reading and says, all right, he is a hero, but we need to read him allegorically because the morality of child sacrifice is simply beyond the pale for a uh, civilized person of the polis. Uh, you're more insistent that b biblical readers keep Jephthah first and foremost literal. So, I mean, I, I know that we're uh, sticking with the allegory versus literal reading question, but I think it applies here. Why is it, the way that you teach the Bible and the way that you read the Bible, why is it important to keep the literal narrative of Jephthah in front of the reader? Well, you know, I teach the Bible as a religious text mm -hmm. that people use, for better or worse, for moral guidance. And people attach importance to the meaning of the Bible, whether they regard that as a divinely implanted meaning or as a humanly implanted meaning. Mm -hmm. But so that what the text means carries some weight in that discussion. Now, I'm not though. I guess for uh, for Plato, say it probably did because Homer carried great weight oh, in the yeah. ancient world. 
And there have been times, I think some of the church fathers also did this, where they say, you know, it's not morally acceptable to uh, to read it that way. And so let's say it meant something else, which is essentially what allegory is doing. Now, uh, I don't see that as a credible way of dealing with the text in those situations anymore, because I don't think there's any great doubt that the story of Jephthah, you know, which was probably a folk tale, we've no idea whether it actually happened or not. That's not really the point with it. But it is actually a story about human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I think the first thing that one ought to do is admit that. Okay. Now, if, if then you want to preach a sermon on it, you're free to go off in any allegorical flight that you want. Mm-hmm. But at least we're not to admit what the text itself is about. Okay. All and, right. if, you know, to distort that or to cover that over uh, seems to me dishonest. And I guess part of what I'm saying in this book that it would be better if you disagree with what the Bible says. It's better to say that you disagree with it rather than say, let's say it means something else. Okay. And in your view, I mean, just so our listeners can hear it plain, uh, what is it that makes that approach better than the allegor- uh, the allegorical approach that you've been describing? Well, the, the allegorical approach that I've been describing is one that's used for apologetic purposes, and I think it's dishonest. Okay. It's saying that the text means something that it doesn't mean. All right, all right. Well, I want to turn from uh, hermeneutics for a moment to... Uh, you know, the ethical use of the Bible. And when you discuss the Bible and abortion, again, in the Right to Life chapter, mm-hmm. uh, you grant that its narratives and symbols tend to treat the unborn as gifts, but that any policy p- position on abortion is going to be the Bible plus some other influences that shape the policy, that there is no simple biblical answer. What processes and practices, in your view, mark the better Bible-involved answers from the worse Bible-involved answers? Because certainly there are better and worse approaches to thinking yeah. about Bible and policy next to each other. What makes, it, the, what makes the better approaches better? It, personally, I have a lot of sympathy with the approach uh, articulated by Richard Hayes that I quote in the, the book, uh, which is to say, you know, that from a biblical point of view, life is a gift. It is normally to be welcomed. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't quite go to the point of saying, and there are no exceptions to that. Mm-hmm. Because, in fact, when you get down to it, the Bible never discusses abortion at all. And therefore, you know, it leaves you on your own to figure out what is the appropriate way to do it. Now, I would agree the normal thing is life is to be welcomed. Life is to be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, and uh, I can't see, uh, I can't imagine thinking of abortion as something that is good in itself. I can imagine lots of cases where it might be the lesser evil. But that's the the kind of framework. But in any case, you know, uh, in writing on what the Bible says about it, mm-hmm. the answer is simply, it doesn't say anything about it. Right. And I think what that at least shows is that you can't say that your stand on abortion is a litmus test for biblical values. 
Okay. Let me ask you this as a follow-up. I mean, the uh, the fairly well-known and, and widely available Didache, uh, which is, you know, yeah. not very long at all after the New Testament canonical books are written, I mean, does take a, a fairly explicit position on abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, what relationship do you see that kind of text standing in relationship to the canonical books? I mean, should that inform our hermeneutics, or should it be, you know, mainly a simply an exhibit of how other people have read them. Uh, how would you approach that? Well, you know, it's part of tradition. Mm-hmm. I'm a Catholic. I think tradition is important. I don't think tradition is law. You know, so it's not that you find something in the tradition that says something and that settles it, but it's something that goes into the hopper that okay. helps inform a decision that you make about it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think there's a, a weighty Christian tradition that's critical of abortion. Uh, I don't think one can conclude from that that abortion shouldn't be allowed at all. Mm-hmm. I think it's not something one should do lightly, and I doubt that many people do it lightly. No, I think that's a very, uh, a very weighty and... Uh, and troublesome decision for people who decide to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, I don't feel, and I certainly don't feel that I have any biblical mandate for telling people in the end that you must decide it this way or that way. Okay, all right. Well, I want to turn from the right to life chapter to the chapter on sexual desire. Uh, mm-hmm. And your chap- that chapter uh, once again, grants that the word that the King James translates as abomination, and my Hebrew classes are now 20 years in my past, so I'm not going to try to pronounce it, uh, that that word does carry moral weight, but that ultimately sexual desire is on a, it's a side concern for the Old Testament, uh, which is a collection that is concerned far more with worship and with oppression than it is with sex per se. So in your view, I mean, what has made sexual desire perhaps, you know, one of the two central litmus tests for whether Americans regard each other as biblical or not? How did it get to the center when the Bible itself doesn't put it in the center? Now, yeah, that that's a, a very good question. Uh, you know, you may be better equipped to answer it as a medievalist, if you are. And <laughs> um, I think... A certain amount of it goes back to Augustine, but I don't mm. think he was the inventor of it. Okay. But I think, you know, in late antiquity, there was a strong dichotomy of body and soul mm-hmm. and a distrust of the flesh in a sense that you don't get at all in the Hebrew Bible and you get to a less, to a limited degree in the New Testament. I think more in Paul than in the Gospels. And I think, you know, that that grew over time. Uh, In the long run, it seems to me that people find it easier, you know, to have clear and definite ideas on sexual matters than they do on things like social justice. Mm -hmm. Which, You know, in fact, that there was um, a moral philosopher at Princeton, I don't know if he's still there or not, uh, named George. Um, some years back, you know, who who made that argument? He was an advisor to the Catholic bishops that um, no moral and the requirements of social justice aren't all that clear. 
let's focus on things that are quite clear. Mm-hmm. And so abortion and homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Now, that to my mind is very deficient moral reasoning. You know, ease of taking a firm position on something is not a good reason to make that your priority. Certainly, I and it's that's an interesting take, and I've I've certainly heard that as well uh, from Robert George and from others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I mean that that always uh, struck me as odd. I I wonder if that is a function of you know an approach to biblical text that regards the verse as the main unit of meaning rather than the book of the Bible. Because it strikes me that when you read, you know, something like Isaiah or Amos, I mean, you know, the the grand picture emerges, I mean, with some force, even if individual verses uh, still remain obscure. I mean, do you think that's a, the, the, do you think I'm overconfident there? Or do you think that's what happens well, with the prophets? It will be something to that, but I uh-huh. don't, think the the obsession with with sexuality mm-hmm. that we have certainly had in all branches of Christianity doesn't really come from the Bible. Okay. I would right. say. Now, I think it comes, I would think, probably from a kind of Neoplatonic philosophy. Okay. As something that, that flourished in uh, the early centuries of Christianity but not really in the biblical period. And that wasn't characteristic of the Semitic world to the, in the same way. And that's interesting. I, in, and in, I, the, I, yeah, go in, ahead. In, in the biblical world, uh, you know, um, uh, what we might call pornea, fornication, mm-hmm. zanut, uh, is not respected, maybe even despised. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's not the main thing that the prophets or Jesus preach against. Certainly, certainly. So it, it's peripheral in that sense. You well, know, and when it is, it is a... Shouldn't do, but that's not what it's all about. Right, right. And when it is, it is a, a figurative approach to talking about idolatry in the Old Testament, at least. Uh, it's, it's very often that, yeah. Ha, huh, that's interesting. Um, it, it's interesting. I want to float another theory by you. I mean, I... My sense is that at least the current obsession with sexuality, I mean, has at least something to do with the strong connection between homosexuals and political subversives in Victorian writing. Uh, so that you know, when it's you get yeah. when you get out of the uh, you know out of the oh out of the 19th century, I'll just go ahead and say, and on into you know the era of international communism a lot of times public rhetoric associates the homosexual with the communist so that they both become, you know, not simply an outsider, but also something of a danger, something of a subversive possibility. Uh, so it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I think there is something to your connections that are much, much more ancient than that one. But uh, I, I get the sense that the strong anti-communism of American politics in the mid-20th century have given at least a, a particular flavor that we're still living with now. Well, no, that's very interesting. Um, no, I would tend to think that the uh, the strong aversion to homosexuality, as mm. you get it already, say, in the book of Leviticus, is just that it's odd. 
queer, okay. like, mm-hmm. you know, abnormal. And that, that the, the logic of Leviticus depends on a sense of certain things being normal, certain things being abnormal, and then shunning or keeping at arm's length the things that are abnormal. Mm-hmm. Now, there are psycholo- that had bits of psychological explanation, I think. And I also think it's quite atypical of the Bible as a whole. Certainly. It's a minor strand. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Uh, I can see that. Especially in the priestly literature. And, you know, it, it's kind of obsessive and uh, very much concerned with purity. And uh, Sigmund Freud would have had a field day with it. Uh, and he did in his... Uh... His, uh, well, uh, what what is his book on uh, Moses and Akhenaten and such? Yes, I can't think of the name of that book now. Well, Moses and Manatee is Ah, oh, that's the one. That's the one. Yes, yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to turn to uh, an an accusation that I often see floated about the Old Testament, especially, but the Bible more generally, uh, that it is a misogynist text. And once again, I, I appreciate your book's approach because it is cautious. It grants that the Old Testament's world is androcentric. Uh, men are always the main moral agents, and feminist biblical studies do well to note that women never seem to be the primary addressee when Moses gives his law or when the prophets proclaim justice. And yet, you maintain that there is some distance, some space, between the Bible's androcentric approach and what you would what I would call a more explicit or positive misogyny. So what grounds do you offer for saying that the Bible is not, uh, let's say, aggressively misogynistic, but still remains androcentric? Well, you know, I, I think to be androcentric is not necessarily to be misogynistic. Mm-hmm. To be androcentric is often to be oblivious to the other sex. Mm-hmm. And whereas to be misogynistic has a real animus against them, right? Now there are the, the most misogynistic passages I can think of in the biblical tradition, in the Book of Ben Sirah or Ecclesiasticus, which would be in yes. the Protestant Apocrypha. Mm-hmm. And there are a few passages there that couldn't be called anything else, right? You know, that that are really offensive to women. Uh, there is maybe a verse in Koheleth, but I think he's not so much misogynistic as misanthropic. Right. So, you know, whereas most of the time it's unconscious prejudice and, you know, it's, it's the, the, the dominance of the male that had not yet been challenged. Right. You still get this in a lot of traditional societies, and indeed, it is not entirely absent in our own society. But uh, but I still say that's not quite the same thing as the kind of misogyny that shows up, for example, in Ben Sira. Right. Oh, and certainly I, uh, you know, <laughs> I've studied Ben Sira not extensively, but I've studied it enough to see the difference that you're pointing to there. So I, I think that's helpful. I think that's helpful. I mean, Ben Sera, I think, is a great book to study because mm-hmm. he gives you kind of normal life, normal thinking mm-hmm. in the Hellenistic period. It's not always pretty. Right. Because it tells <laughs> that's, you, that's one it, way to put it. <laughs> it's not an elite book. Mm-hmm. It kind of gives you the... the um, 
but the, <laughs> what's more likely to have been fairly typical of people. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk a little bit about liberation theology, because mm-hmm. uh, when you turn to liberation theology, uh, you spend a fair bit of time on liberation theology's use of Exodus narratives, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know absolutely central to that tradition, whether you're talking about Gustavo Gutierrez, whether you're talking about James Cone, this is a tradition that loves Exodus. Uh, and as we discussed earlier, you don't have much use for allegory in Bible reading, but in this chapter you say this, and I'll quote you, quote, the relevance of the Bible to the modern world depends on its analogical use, end quote. So mm-hmm. what distinction would you draw between analogical and allegorical readings? Because I have a sense that that distinction is going to be important to how our listeners understand your project. Yeah. Uh, well, in analogical reasoning, you take the base text literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you say, this is like something that happens over here. In allegorical thinking, as I would understand it, uh, you do not take the base text literally. Mm-hmm. You say, you know, that this is uh, an allegory for what was happening at some other time and place. Mm-hmm. Now, again, there are texts that are allegorical. You know, in the, the book of Revelation, when they talk about Babylon, they really mean Rome. Right. Babylon hadn't existed for a good and, two and a half centuries. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, there are cases where, where allegory is fine there. But... Um, Analogy, for example, in the case of the use of the Exodus, it is not that the Exodus was written about Latin American or black American uh, social problems, Mm -hmm. but that people can see an analogy between what was going on in Egypt, between the ancient condition of slavery or oppression and the modern situations. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, analogy is always to some degree in the eye of the beholder, uh, I think. Uh, but if you don't see the and if you don't see analogies between the the bi- biblical material in its historical context and mm-hmm. other later contexts, then the Bible would very quickly become irrelevant. Okay, let me follow up on that because I mean I you know if uh, Dante were sitting here, if my Italian were better. Uh, he might say that, you know, an allegorical reading is simply an analogy between the life of history and the life of the soul. Uh, do you see that as a, a, would you see that as a valid counter, uh, since I'm now speaking for Dante, or do you think that there's still something off target about that? Uh, well, I certainly wouldn't rule that out mm-hmm. a priori. I'd like to see, you know, how it was then developed. Okay. But, but I think usually, well, t- take a case now that, that is uh, the text that's often read allegorically in the Bible, the Song of Songs. Sure. Which is actually uh, a text I didn't engage very much with. But That's a brief it, book. It's a brief book. <laughs> but but uh, it's a very interesting book. Mm-hmm. And very interesting. Oh, I mean, your book is a, is a brief book. You couldn't do the whole Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and I think your book is also interesting, for the record, I, I but keep going. <laughs> there's any serious doubt that the Song of Songs was first of all written about physical love. Certainly. You know, a young couple in love, that's what it is about. 
Right, it's a wedding song. If you then want to say, and this is the way Christ loves the church, or this is an allegory for the mystical union of the soul or whatever, and so long as you know what you're doing mm-hmm. and admit what you're doing, I have no problem with that. So one of the um, the biblical scholars who influenced me in my youth was a man named Roland Murphy, who was a Carmelite priest, ended his career teaching at Duke University for many years, worked on wisdom literature. But he would refer, I think, to the allegorical reading of the Song of Songs as playing with the Bible. <laughs> in other words, it's letting your imagination run with it. Mm-hmm. Now, that's fine. Maybe we should do more of it. But there's a difference between that and saying, and that's what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think you can claim biblical authority for the allegorical reading of the Song of Songs. Okay, and that's interesting because again, I'm doing mean, all that, but you know, mm-hmm. and and you know, biblical authority is one of the uh, the specters that haunts my book. Oh, certainly, <laughs> and it's a very certainly. Protestant phenomenon. Oh, absolutely, and I, and I and I think that's one interesting yeah. point of departure uh, is that you know the what I would call the intellectual masters of allegory rather than the sort of sloppy allegory that that you're talking about would always say that the literal is always the literal, but that every Bible passage means at least three or four things. That, you know, if you say, what does the Bible really mean? What you're asking for is a a litany of readings rather than a single reading. Whereas, you know, what you seem to be objecting to is people who take the allegorical meaning to be the meaning of the text. So it's interesting. I mean, you know, certainly you're answering the questions differently but it seems like you're answering a different kind of question as well. Well, uh, I mean, if I'm answering a different kind of question, then I may not be, I may not quite grasp where you're coming from. You know, I don't spend a lot of time on Dante. Sure, sure. <laughs> I gather, you know, I'm sure it's wonderful. And I have a colleague, uh, Peter Hawkins here, who's a wonderful Dante yes. scholar. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. People love his classes. Mm-hmm. And you know, fine. That's an allegorical, that's a, a literary skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I would have a problem, you know, with um, saying that an allegorical interpretation gives you the meaning of the Bible. Okay. I All guess right. that the question that we're dancing around a little bit there is mm-hmm. where does meaning lie? Certainly. Say a little and, bit more about that because that's important. Well, I suppose to put the thing in a fairly simple, simple-minded way, I look at any text as uh, an attempt to communicate. Mm-hmm. If I say certain things in my book, you know, I do think that my intention in writing it has some normative uh, standing for the meaning of the book. Mm-hmm. Now. I can admit that you may, if you do a kind of Freudian reading of it, you can detect perhaps things that I let slip that I wasn't fully conscious of. Mm-hmm. But I would not accept if somebody says, well, this is, the real meaning of this is about Zen Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right, it's right. It's completely different. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, I can understand that distinction. That, that's the, the, the kind of framework I'm coming out of. Okay, fair enough. Well, I want to turn to a couple other of the issues because that your book addresses because I think that you are engaging some questions that deserve some serious attention. Uh, and one of those is your discussion of servanthood and slavery as moral paradigms, uh, especially in the New Testament, yeah. but also in, in you know, the... Yeah famously the servant passages of Isaiah and so on and so forth. Friedrich Nietzsche, of course, developed an entire strand of modern atheism that attacks Christianity as slave morality. Uh, and that image's prevalence and perhaps even centrality in the New Testament is hard to deny. So talk to our listeners for a little bit about Philippians 2 in particular, the last becoming first, or whatever other you know slave images you want to. But spend a few minutes on the difficulties that those slave images in the Bible present for ethical thinking. Well, uh, it's, but the first thing to note, this is very much off the top of my head mm -hmm. in response to you. Uh, first distinction I would make is taking, the, taking on the role of a slave for yourself is mm -hmm. a very different matter from saying it's okay for somebody else. Yes. So that at least would be for starters. So whatever you make of Philippians 2, it, it shouldn't be a license to say, and therefore you should all empty yourselves and become like slaves. Well, pause for just a moment. Is that not what Paul says in Philippians 2? Yeah, that may well be. I don't... <laughs> okay, all right, all right, because, I mean, I, I, it's, 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 it's an imperative verb. I mean, he says, take for yourselves the mind of Christ who... Yeah. So yeah. on and so forth. But, but even, well, yeah. Now, I mean, the distinction that I would want to make, and the, let me know what you think about this distinction, mm -hmm. is between making a moral appeal to others to empty themselves and yeah. imposing by violence uh, the deprivation of freedom on other human persons. Yes. So, yes. I mean, uh, keep keep talking because this is important. <laughs> well, yeah, but no, I think that that's a good way of putting it. So that regardless of the imperative, uh, well, the, the translation I have in front of me here, I think is let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Ah, I mean, okay. So I, it's more of an so, optative so then. I would take that passage as basically an appeal for altruism. Okay. Now, I guess this is the residual Christianity within me that uh, I think, you know, altruism is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Probably in some moderation, there are probably limits to it. But on the whole, I think it's something that's in short supply in the world and we could use more of. Now, but the value of altruism, I think, uh, depends on whether you are actually doing good to other people, whether you actually help other people by taking that sort of an approach. Mm -hmm. And that can become quite questionable because, you know, if you have a, a culture and in thinking, what comes to my mind here are generations of Catholic religious and maybe especially religious women okay. who, on whom this was imposed. And where it, the, the result of it was that they accepted and put up with stuff that should not have been accepted and put up with. Certainly. You know, that, I think that becomes a problem. 
at that point. You see that there is, um, I think, where the tension arises is that when when should you no longer just submit and suffer, and when should you raise up and protest? Mm-hmm. And I would definitely think there there is a time, and maybe an early time, when you should raise up and protest. But on the, on the whole, I mean, what I take from uh, from Philippians too, as I say, is an appeal for altruism. And I think for most people, that would be salutary because most of us are far too self-centered. With that, I will not disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, I want to turn, because I think this is a related discussion, uh, when you turn from, you know, this this image of slavery to your chapter on violence and zeal, uh, I I think it's interesting because uh, in your chapter on liberation, uh, you spoke, you know, with pretty clear approval of the use of Exodus by, you know, liberation theologians, whether we're talking about in the strain of Gutierrez or Cohn. But then when you turn to this one, uh, you don't have nearly as much uh, positive regard, I'll put it that way, for the same kinds of images that we see in Revelation of God smiting the powerful with plagues, with divine wrath coming down on the oppressor. Uh, so on and so forth. I'm curious because when I read these two chapters and I went back and reread them, uh, I had trouble saying, all right, what is it that's going on in Revelation that's so different from Exodus that that causes these different responses? So I want to turn it over to you for a moment. Go ahead. First of all, let me qualify Uh my reading of Exodus. Yes, and actually, you would find a, probably a clearer expression of this in a book I did about 15 years ago, uh, called "The Bible After Babel." Okay. And uh, in that, I engaged. There was a famous debate about the Book of Exodus between Michael Walzer mm-hmm. and um, the, the Palestinian um, uh, Edward Said. Yes, I've read Said. Uh huh. And Said's point is there would have been. You know, the Exodus would have had no point if it weren't for the conquest. Okay. Because they would have had nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And there was another side to that, because the land was not empty. Right. And it was, in a way, redeeming one injustice by another. Right. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with Edward Said, he was uh, yeah. famous not only for his literary theory, but also for his advocacy for Palestinian rights in the yeah. latter half of the 20th century. Yes, and if I think uh, admirably so. Uh, yes. And so, you know, I think there is a dark side to the Exodus mm-hmm. to begin with. Now, you know, <laughs> you, could, you could take a moderate application of this. Um, you know, that the Jews needed somewhere to go after what happened in Europe and the Hitler era. Mm-hmm. Now, does that justify uh, taking over a chunk of Palestine? These become difficult moral issues. Certainly. And I think, you know, so that what happens then with Revelation is you just have the same thing blown up on a cosmic scale. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the need for liberation, which, you know, and freedom from oppression, which is kind of basic human need is not and should not be 
a license then for unmitigated violence on other people. Even, uh, I mean, there are limits to how far it's, uh, it's, it should be a license for violence on the oppressor. Mm-hmm. Should be enough to get you out of the situation. It shouldn't necessarily be called for a reversal. Right, and and it's interesting, and and you know I'm going to bring in Nietzsche again. I mean, you know, this is uh, famously Nietzsche's reading of Revelation in Gene- Genealogy of Morals that it is the the sort of beating heart of Christian raisonnement, and you yeah. know the the ethics of you know uh, the weak despising the strong because they are strong. Uh, so it's interesting that you know I mean this uh, this critique is not something that is exclusive to religious communities, but you know even one of the uh, best-known atheist writers uh, sees this as a, a a moral dynamic, if you will, in Revelation. Yeah, but now in Revelation, I think, and in Exodus, you also have, you see, the desire to be strong. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the weak, uh, the weak despising the strong. I think the the post-colonialists have have got this right. You know that there is often mimicry, right? That uh, then you know the oppressed, given the opportunity, would become just like the oppressors. And often they have. <laughs> and often they have. And yes. this is human thing, and it runs through history. There's nothing peculiarly biblical about it, mm-hmm. but the Bible is not immune from it. Right. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the prophets because once again, uh, I keep praising the the reserve of this book, which which I don't know if that makes me, you know, the most dull interviewer ever. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it because uh, you don't deny that the prophets speak boldly against kings and that they stand pretty well unique in that regard in their historical moment. The prophets that we have from other, uh, you know, Mediterranean contexts, generally speaking stay within monarchical frameworks. But you do also note that their calls for justice never do call for revolution, only redistribution within a very recognizable ancient Near Eastern context. So where do the prophets fit in your larger project of taking the Bible literally first and perhaps literally primarily? Now, uh, let it be noted first of all that if I'm saying you should take the Bible literally, I don't mean that you should take it as authoritative in its literal sense. No, but you should read it literally. I'm, you I, read I'm, it. Yeah, yeah, I, I should have been more precise there. Thank and, you. And I think you should read the prophets quite literally. Mm-hmm. And I think if you do, you will find much in them that is inspiring with some limitations. Okay. Now, one of the limitations, I think, from a modern perspective is that they don't really imagine a structural change in society. Mm-hmm. And I don't really say that as a criticism of them. Nobody in the ancient world, well, maybe maybe Plato or somebody did. <laughs> uh, but but um, uh, it would have been quite, quite difficult right. uh, you know, to, to think in terms of a need for structural change. What they did, I think... Is, what they do most powerfully is protest. Mm-hmm. And the same is true for the book of Revelation in the New Testament. You know, it's very good on what it is against. Not quite as good 
in Legends 4. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. The book's chapter on the right to life, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to travel back to the beginning of the book for a moment here, mm-hmm. rightly notes that the word right, uh, as we use it in 2019, is largely a modern construct. Uh, and I want to inquire after another modern construct, namely the concept of values, that word that appears in the book's title. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I teach, you know, genealogy of morals fairly frequently, as we've discussed, uh, that's the text within which I tend to locate values when I do think about them. Um, as you see things, uh, you know, what makes values as a concept worth thinking about when we read the Bible? You know, is it mainly just responding to you know, the political use of the word values, or is there something inherent in values as a term uh, that helps us to see things in the Bible that perhaps we wouldn't Mm -hmm. see without the concept values? Well, you know, first of all, I mean, I used the word, I chose the word because of its currency. Yeah, I got that sense. Mm -hmm. But uh, that said, if I didn't use the word values, I'd have had to come up with something else. Because uh, what I am looking for is a way of saying what is typical of the Bible, not just what does the Bible say in an isolated verse here and there. Right. And I think that's one of the the principal problems that comes up in um, in the use of the Bible is that people will pick out a verse quite at random. You know, there's the, the famous um, uh, one there with uh, with Jeff Sessions. Uh, oh, heavens. You know, yeah. to, you know <laughs> right? You just take it as, as somebody said, if you just read it on, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that's right. That's right. I've changed the whole thing. <laughs> so, you know, it's that, it's that sense of perspective that we're not mm-hmm. just talking about isolated statements here. Mm-hmm. We're talking about things that have some currency that carry some weight. Okay. Well, I want to press a question that arises in the book's final paragraph. Uh, after you spend the book's conclusion reiterating that the Bible's agenda only stands valid when it coincides with, quote, broad humanistic grounds, end quote, uh, and that's something that's been, you know, pretty consistent throughout at our conversation, mm-hmm. you turn in the last paragraph uh, and you seem and I'll emphasize seem here because I want to hear your account of it, you seem to call for the book's use in, quote, effective rhetoric, close quote, for the sake of swaying those who do regard the Bible as a more robust authority. So if you'll allow me to be Kantian for a moment, which I'm not often Kantian, but I'm going to ask this question, how does this rhetorical use of the Bible and the Bible's authority authority, uh, keep from regarding the Bible-respecting others as an end rather than as a means? Ooh. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I have no objection, if you were, to say that it's manipulative. Okay. Uh, you know, I am saying that people are can be influenced by being shown that the Bible says something. If you can do that for a good end, why not do it? Okay. Now, there's a certain danger in that. Yes, yes. Because if you can do it for a good end, (laughs) then why not do it also for a bad end? Yes. (laughs) But I I mean, at the same time, I think uh, 
I think there is some validity to it that um, that that you know we shouldn't disregard a resource mm-hmm. which can be used for good just because the same resource can on occasion be used for ill. Well, let me follow up on that because there are certain writers and thinkers in our moment uh, who are far more inclined to say that the work of the biblically literate intellectual should be to disabuse. Uh, those who are, you know, influenced by the Bible of that influence to teach them to think non-biblically because the Bible is a a relic of a an era far gone, yeah. uh, you know, and and you know, you, you don't have to go as extreme as a Richard Dawkins or a Daniel Dennett. I mean, there are certainly people uh, within mainline liberal Protestantism who say we need to get people thinking ethically, not biblically. Uh, as far as that goes, I mean, you know, uh, is there anything to commend in that approach, or would you consider, you know, the harnessing of biblical authority to be ultimately better than the dissolving, if you will, or the opposition to biblical authority? You see, I think the problem with that approach, if you say, let's dump the Bible altogether, mm-hmm. I, I can certainly see how people arrive at that. Yes. And I have, uh, in some cases, I have sympathy with it. But at the same time, you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Okay. So you what's, know, what's has, the baby, what's the bathwater? <laughs> look, look the, uh, the baby in the bathwater, to my mind, is mm-hmm. in the, the Old Testament, it's the idea of social justice. And in the New Testament, it's love your neighbor as yourself, which incidentally is also there in the book of Leviticus. Mm-hmm. Right, Jesus, Jesus is quoting Leviticus when he yourself. says that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry? Oh, I said, I, I was agreeing with you. I said Jesus yeah. is actually quoting Leviticus when he right. says on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. So, you know, I think those are two of the great insights, two of the, the great moral insights, I think, mm-hmm. that have come down to us from antiquity. Okay. And... We should use them. And, you know, if people are, I think, ideally, you know, people should appreciate those insights for themselves. But if some people will be more inclined to take them seriously because they're biblical, well, then they are biblical. Why not use that? If it's a resource that can be used for good. All right. All right. Well, Dr. Collins, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. Uh, What about the Bible, values, or whatever else do you want our listeners thinking about as we head for the door? Actually, I think we were ending up there in a pretty good place. (laughs) Because what I would like people thinking about is, what is the baby and what is the bathwater? You know, what is... What is it in the Bible that makes this book still worth reading? And I think that there is plenty in it, but especially the things that I just mentioned, that the preaching on social justice and the Hebrew Bible and the, the bit about love your neighbor, which, as they say, is also in the Hebrew Bible, but maybe developed more in the New Testament. And... Uh, I think, you know, it's a matter of what I would like them to think about is their priorities. And for people who do value the Bible, I think it's important that they get those priorities straight. 
I mean, one of the great frustrations from the viewpoint of somebody like myself is seeing people who say they are biblical Christians and that they are standing for biblical values and then, uh, you know, taking positions that seem antithetical to what I would regard as central in the, the biblical material. So that's what I would like people to think about. Good. John Collins, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Listeners, thank you for downloading. Uh, the book is What Are Biblical Values? What the Bible Says on Key Ethical Issues from Yale University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>